Bibles to the book of Revelation. Well, uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote in his book, The Bondage of the Will, said this, If I lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether he required something more. The experience of all who seek righteousness by works proves that. And I learned it well enough myself over a period of many years, to my own great hurt. But now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of his and promised to save me, not according to my working or running, but according to his own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that he is faithful and will not lie to me, and that he is also great and powerful, so that no devils or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. A comfortable certainty. How can we achieve a comfortable certainty? Luther, he, he tried the route of discipline and good works. Uh, Luther, if you're unfamiliar with his story, was uh, nearly struck by lightning and became a monk because of it, because of his fear. And Luther spent his time as a monk in great discipline and unable to find any comfort for his soul. Unable to ever feel like he had done enough to earn God's love until he read the scriptures and was converted under reading the scriptures and seeing ultimately God's grace to him. It was the scriptures that ultimately gave Luther what he describes as this comfortable certainty. Well, we said from the very beginning of reading uh, or of walking through this book of Revelation that uh, at the very beginning, right, it says, blessed is all who read the words of this. And we said, confused maybe is all that read the word of this, not blessed. Uh, if there's any book that is going to lead us into less certainty, we might think it's the book of Revelation. And yet, its very design is to lead us to this comfortable certainty, now, not comfort in the way that we think of comfort, like a comfortable existence or a certainty of health and wealth and goodness. Certainly we have shown that that is not what the book of Revelation is talking about. It is an embrace of suffering. But comfort as in spiritual comfort from God, assurance of his presence and certainty to endure all discomfort for the sake of the gospel because God has promised to save us. And the irony of this is that the passage that we're about to read has caused much discomfortable uncertainty for so many people, even though it's designed to give you the very opposite. For many people, the book of Revelation, the first thing that you think of is this idea of a thousand years and the millennium. And what does this millennium mean? And the rapture and all of these things. And for many people, maybe you included, this has been a great source of trauma or uh, uh, fear. Religious trauma and fear. Uh, I've read stories this week of folks who grew up in these environments of, of being ready for the rapture and uh, fear of the millennium and all these pieces, so much so that kids would come home from school and their parents weren't there, and so they were like convinced that the rapture had happened because 
no one was there, and so I was left behind, and now I have to figure out how to survive because I was left behind. This fear that you hadn't done enough, and if you haven't done enough, you might get left behind and have to endure this horrible tribulation. Well, if you've been walking through this book with us from the beginning, you know that's not what I think the point of this book is. Uh, Hopefully you know that. Uh, But I want to dispel that uh, from this very passage today uh, and to see what this passage is really about. And actually, I want to say that this passage is about giving us certainty in God's multi-ethnic mission. Rather than uncertainty about my personal future, this sort of uncertainty about what's going to happen, this passage is designed to give us certainty about God's multi-ethnic mission. So we're going to read this passage, uh, finally getting to the place that maybe many of you thought we would get to sooner, the millennium. Uh, All right. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. Again, remember, then I saw does not mean necessarily a strict chronological progression, but just the next thing that he saw. And we just saw uh, the end of chapter 19 ends pretty terrifying in this uh, judgment scene, and that's the end of the sixth section of Revelation. So 20 is the start of the seventh section. So we should expect at the start of the seventh section to again go back to the very beginning of the timeline that we are looking at. I'm going to show you the charts in a minute. It'll be fine. Don't worry, it's not scary. There's no string attached everywhere, and unlike the meme that the uh, elders made of me, uh, that was Adam. Uh, but the, the, the reality is we should expect when we see uh, the dramatic conclusion of a section that we're restarting a new section, okay? So that should trigger some things in us when we think about that. So... Uh, He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years had come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, 
as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, I wanted to read the whole passage for us this morning to get the whole context, and then we're going to kind of zoom in on a few things. All right, the beginning part of this sermon is, it might feel a little different because we got to deal with this millennium thing and deal with what's going on there so that we can understand what's going on. So we're going to look at a whole lot of scripture from within the book of Revelation and a couple other spots, but mostly from the book of Revelation to key us in on some things that we've been seeing throughout so that you can help, uh, so that I can help you understand how to do this and how to deal with this. But I want to first go back to the charts that we showed at the very beginning, right? So the book of Revelation um, is written to describe the entire inter-advent church age, right? Inter-advent meaning between the two comings of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus, his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, and his second coming, uh, which comes with final judgment and salvation. Now, depending upon your view of the millennium and view of the book of Revelation, you might put the book of Revelation just in this very tiny spot right here at the beginning or just in this very tiny spot at the end. But we're saying the book of Revelation covers this entire period of time. Covers this whole time. Meaning that it is applicable to us today just as it was to the first century Christians. And it's not just describing things that are going to happen at the very end of the age. It does describe those things, but it also describes things that we are living in currently. This is consistent with what Paul describes as living in the latter days, the end end times, or what Jesus describes for his disciples as what it means to, uh, what his coming has meant. That the new age has already dawned, and the old age is dying. Meaning, we live in this in-between between the old age dying and the new resurrection life coming, and we live in the final days. And this has been true the entire time of church history. So, this is the case. Now, there were numbers that we saw early on in the book of Revelation that describe this same time period. We're going to say, we're going to talk about the thousand years today, but I'm going to say this thousand years describes this entire time frame in a metaphorical way. That's what is being described by the thousand years. There also were other time frames that we saw. Remember, there was this time frame of uh, three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days. Those are all the same amount of time. Uh, This shows up in chapter 11 uh, when it's talking about uh, the section that has the seven trumpets. Uh, That was the third section of Revelation. And then in chapter 12, in the fourth section of of Revelation, uh, the 42 months and 1260 days, and time, times, and half a time, which is uh, just uh, the, the language used for three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. All of that was, was uh, contained in chapter 12. Now, Why we believe that the millennium fits within this same time frame, this thousand years, uh, I want to show you kind of uh, the way in which we believe that this, uh, we should understand it this way. First of all, we need to understand it within the whole context of the book, and in particular, the way that figurative language and numbers are used throughout. 
Remember, we saw lots of figurative language throughout, right? That there are uh, 12 tribes, right? There are 12, there's the 144,000, right? Which is 12 times 12, 144 times 1,000. Which 1,000 just meant big, remember we said that? So 1,000 just means big, long period of time. If that's true in the 144,000 and we don't think that there's only 144,000 people in heaven... Sorry, guys, we're probably out at this point. There's been a long time of church history, so we should probably all just pack up and go home. If there's only 144,000, right? Like, that's not what we believe about that, right? And that's a figurative number. And we said the thousand just meant a lot. And so this thousand years here probably just means a lot. It's just a way of apocalyptic language and figurative language for meaning a lot of years. Remember, Jesus has seven eyes. So if we're to say that this number is literal, why is that number not? Or, or we have a very strange view of Jesus in his resurrection body. Just John and, and Luke and Mark and Matthew don't show Jesus showing up, and that's why they were startled. Not because they had the door locked and Jesus showed up, but because he had seven eyes now. Like, right? There's figurative language throughout this whole book. So we should assume that when we see a number, it probably has a meaning that's not literal. That's what we should assume, given that it's apocalyptic language, and given that the whole book has used numbers in that way. We should assume that. Now we should also hit on some key things, uh, pun intended there with key, because we're going to talk about keys here in a second. But we should hit on some key things if we see language that is repeated we should find out, hey, what did that language mean in other places, and what should we understand about it? So there's a number of repeated things in this section, similar language. The first is keys. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Okay? Revelation 3.7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Then the fifth angel, Revelation 9, blew his trumpet and saw a great star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. All right, so we have these keys, right? Jesus is the one with the keys to life and death. He has the keys of the kingdom, the keys of David, right? This idea is that you have the ability to open and shut the kingdom of God to others. This is what Jesus possesses. And then there's this angel that has the key to the bottomless pit. It's exactly what we see here in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. Now, we should understand if there's an angel here with a key to the bottomless pit in 20 and the exact same things, a star falling from heaven, right, is an angel. We said that when we were talking about Revelation 9, falling from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit. Then chapter 9 and chapter 20 are related, right, because it's describing the same events. Remember, we said the book of Revelation has these seven sections that's like the final play in the NBA Finals and we got to find this uh, replay from seven different angles. And they're going to show this different thing. Was that a foul? 
Oh, oh maybe it was. Oh, did he get the get the shot off in time before the buzzer went off. we got to look at all these different angles to show you this different thing. It's not describing seven different plays, right? It's describing the same play in seven different ways. That's exactly what the book of Revelation is doing. Describing the same thing from multiple angles. So, the way these things work together, we should assume that there's some relationship with them. Okay, there's also a very strong theme of judgment in this section of Revelation 20. In Revelation 6, 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Well, okay, the great day of wrath is this thing that is talked about all throughout the Scriptures, throughout the prophets, this coming day of judgment. Well, in chapter 6, it says that it has arrived. Well, I'm pretty sure everything he described in chapter 20 is that great day of judgment, right? It seems like it. So did it happen in chapter 6 or did it happen in chapter 20? Right? This is the thing that we should alert ourselves to as we're reading through the book if we're to read it responsibly in context. Shows up again in Revelation 11. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name. From the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. That sounds like final judgment, right? Sounds like everything that John just described in Revelation 20. That happens during the seven trumpets. During the section that talks about the persecuting dragon, says this, Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. Again, final judgment happening before Revelation 20. That's with the seven, or that's with the persecuting dragon. This is with the seven bowls, which are similar to the seven trumpets. Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Now, this one's really important because it says these will bring God's wrath to completion. Well, how is there more wrath in the rest of the book? Because this is only in 15, and specifically in chapter 20. Again, trying to showcase for you there's no way that we can read this chronologically and have it make sense. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. If you remember, uh, during that sermon we looked at Jesus' words, It is finished, that John records in the gospel, and then these words, It is finished, that God's judgment is finished. Right? So there is this sense in which we need to read this book within the context of itself. And as we read it slowly, as we recognize similar language, we might find uh, that the book itself will help us answer these questions. Then we have this section of the souls of the saints, right? So in Revelation 6, another repeated thing here is, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told to rest a little while longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants, of Jesus, who would be martyred, had joined them. Now that sounds exactly like this scene that we just read from Revelation 20. 
Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or on their hands. They had come to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, if John is seeing them in the, uh, this section in chapter 6 and in chapter 20, again, it's describing the same events in two different ways. Then, there's the theme of war. We have in 20 that uh, they're going to, Satan is going to be released after the thousand years, and he's going to gather all the enemies of God for battle. Well, we've already seen this battle twice, Right? Revelation 16, and the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers of their armies to a place with, with the Hebrew name Armageddon. And in Revelation 19, their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. This is what we read last week. There's no way that we can read this book chronologically from start to finish and make sense of it. Again, just to show you a couple more places. Revelation 6, 14. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Okay, if the sky is rolled up like a scroll, it's the same as what we heard in Revelation 20, which is uh, the, Jesus shows up, right? I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they had no place to hide. If the earth and sky are fleeing from the presence, if the sky is rolled up like a scroll, this is apocalyptic literature for the end of the world. This is the language that you would use to say, the world is ending, right? The sky is being rolled up. Well, it rolled up in chapter 6. Chapter 14, the grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Remember, we talked about this, that this is... Uh, the, the language of this is more blood than people have, who have ever existed. This is John's way of saying a lot of people were facing the judgment of God. But if those are the enemies of God's people, how are they gathering again in chapter 20 if they've already been judged? And they were judged in, in chapter 16. There was a terrible hailstorm. And hailstones weighing as much as 75 pounds fell from the sky onto the people below. I don't know about you, but I am not surviving a 75-pound hailstorm. Onto the people below, right? Judgment. Final judgment. Complete judgment. It's just continuing to ratchet up intensity, right? That's the way it works. We just read this one. The entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding. This is in Revelation 20. He will go out and deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty armor, army as numberless as sand along the seashore. Now, where is Satan going to find an army as numberless as sand on the seashore if every person who've ever lived, right, all of that blood is in the river of blood, all of them are killed by the sharp sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, and the vultures gorge themselves on the bodies, and all of them are crushed by hailstorms, and all, right? Like, it's not possible. Here's why this is really important, right? 
Because what happens with passages like this is people build an entire theological system to understand the whole Bible and to interpret modern events like what should we do with Israel and what should we do with this and what things work in this way and what about Russia and Russia coming in to like all of these things are talked through based upon passages like this. But that doesn't even make sense when you read the book. It doesn't make sense when you read the book, which means, and here's why this is important. It's not important because I'm like, hey, I'm going to prove you wrong. And if this is your view, let me slam slam it down on you. No, that's not it at all. It's because we're missing the very real point of this text. Because if that's the point of this text, then what you should do is hide, read your newspaper, and get ready to be raptured because you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing so that you get raptured and avoid all of this. But what if the tribulation and suffering is the entire church age and you're supposed to be ready for it? What if you're supposed to love like Jesus, not stay holed up reading your newspaper and afraid of what's going to happen, but you're supposed to go out and love your neighbor? What if that's the point of this? You see, there are big implications for this. And so what I want you to do is be able to understand, if I read this book slowly, if I pray through it, and I actually just understand it within its own context, then I can understand what's going on. This whole thing of Gog and Magog and the, uh, the, the battle that's happening, this is all coming straight from the book of Ezekiel. We don't have time to kind of go back and look But there's these parallels with the book of Ezekiel and this that are just straight up, like, almost exact. Like, the armies are going to gather around Jerusalem, and then fire is going to come down. What John is doing is saying, Ezekiel was prophesying the end of the world. I'm telling you, this is the thing that will come, but we're not there yet because we're in this thousand-year period. And so, you need to have certainty that God is going to do what he will actually do. So, now, there's a lot more that we could look at in this. I tried to pare it down a little bit uh, so we weren't here for four hours. Um, So, if you have more questions about this or you're really struggling to figure this out, particularly if you've grown up in that tradition or you know people in that tradition or that's your view, you hold to that view, like, I want to dialogue about those things. I want to be open to, you know, I could be wrong. I've said that before. I could totally be wrong, right? Show me in the text. Show me in the text where I'm wrong and I'll change my mind for sure, right? So let's, let's have this dialogue about the text. But let's do that if you want to do that more. Um, absolutely, reach out to me. So what does the passage actually mean then? I think this passage is giving us the certainty of God's multi-ethnic mission. He will accomplish it first by bringing in the nations. He's going to bring in the nations. There's, like, you might be like, God's multi-ethnic mission, where'd you get that from, right? Like a thousand years was mentioned multiple times here, right? Uh, but, but no, no, no. This is the point of the passage, right? He sees the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore. Okay. This is where a lot of the debate comes together, which is, what does it mean that Satan is bound? What does it mean that he's bound? And if I don't experience that Satan is bound 
now, then clearly this is some event in the future and not something right now. But John tells us exactly what he means by Satan is bound. He doesn't mean that Satan is totally bound from ever doing anything ever again. That's not what he says. He says he's bound so that he could not deceive the nations anymore. Remember that Jesus, when he was talking to the religious leaders, what did he say? They said, you've got a demon. He said, how can I have a demon? I'm casting out demons. You can't cast out demons if you have a demon, right? Satan can't cast out Satan. You know what you do? If you want to go and plunder someone's house, you tie up the strong man first. He literally says exactly what is this, right? If you want to go plunder someone's house, you tie up the strong man. This is why also you can't take everything literally because then Jesus is telling you to go rob people's houses, right? What he says is if you want to plunder somebody's house, you tie up the strong man and then you can go plunder his house, right? If I see something valuable in the heir's house, I got to go make sure I tie up Derek first, right? And I got to bring like 10 or 12 more people. But you got to tie up the strong man first and then you can plunder his house, right? Jesus is saying, I did that. And what would happen if you did that? What would plundering Satan's house look like? Well, what's the promise of God from the beginning of the scriptures on? That Abraham would have a family from every tribe and language and people and nation so numerous that you wouldn't be able to count them. What happens when Jesus dies and is resurrected? The church explodes to every tribe, language, people, and nation in numbers you cannot count. Satan cannot deceive the nations anymore. God had a plan. He was going to choose Abraham. He was going to choose this people. He was going to use the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah so that what? All the nations would come. And throughout all of Old Testament history, there are these hints that the nations are coming in. There's promises about it, but largely speaking, God is working through the nation of Israel, his chosen people. What's new in the new covenant? Jew and Gentile are coming in together. The multi-ethnic mission of God is going to be accomplished. Satan can't do anything about it. He cannot touch it. He can no longer deceive the saints. Everyone that God has chosen to come to himself will come. Everyone that God's working in cannot be deceived by Satan. Every tribe, language, people, and nation will come and enjoy the promises of God. Friends, this text should not make us fearful, but should make us bold for the mission of God. It's going to happen. Satan can't do anything about it. He's locked up in a bottomless pit. Now, can Satan harm us still? Sure. Absolutely, he can physically harm us. There's lots of things that can happen to us. We've been talking about it for this whole book, right? The church is going to suffer. They're going to be martyred. He's literally seeing the souls of martyred people. We're not talking about no suffering, but we're talking about certainty of mission. It will be accomplished. It will happen. This is what gives me the most confidence to do what we do here as a church. God's going to do it. If, if he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. 
Now, that doesn't mean that this is going to be easy. It doesn't mean any of those things. But it means he's going to accomplish his mission. Why do you think we have such confidence to go into the city of Muncie, a historically racist and segregated city, to say that the gospel is going to cross socioeconomic and racial and gender boundaries and political boundaries and actually create the multi-ethnic people of God? Why do you think we think that? Because the strong man's been bound. Like, it's over. He lost. The mission can be accomplished. When Jesus says, I'm making you fishers of men, what he's saying is, go out and fish. You're going to catch some fish. It's not on you. I already did it. Just go share the message. Friends, this should give us great confidence to share the gospel. And not just individually, but collectively as a church. You know that when you serve here on Sunday morning in the nursery, you're helping to share the gospel? Like, this thing doesn't happen, and people don't get the opportunity to hear the gospel, particularly if they have small children and it's hard for them to listen, right? Because the nursery exists, right? So it's not just like, oh man, I, well, that sounds great for you. You're, you, you, you know, you do words for a living. You can't spell them, but you do words for a living. You can share the gospel, whatever. But I, that's not me. No, no, no. This is a collective mission. It's never given to one person to do. We do this together as a body. It's our mission to love our neighbor. It is certain. Join us in this mission. Feel confidence to go and to cross socioeconomic and racial and political and gender lines. Go and share the gospel across those lines. Are you going to mess up? Yeah, you are. But is it certain that it's going to be accomplished? Yes, it is. So join us in this mission. The certainty of God's multi-ethnic mission will be accomplished because Satan can no longer deceive the nations and they will be brought in. It will also be accomplished because Jesus is going to defeat Satan and death itself. See, we get this picture of uh, not this, this idea of this thousand years that happens at the end of the church age or whatever is going on, right? This thousand years is the church age, but we get a picture of what happens at the end of this, in this se section. When the thousand years had come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. So the thousand years coming to an end, this is the end of the ages, right? So if you hold to a different view, like you've got to have multiple returns of Jesus and we could get into all that and that's a whole separate thing. I just don't see that in scripture. It sounds very much like Jesus comes back and it's over. There's nothing left to be done except Jesus come back and it's over. But when the thousand years come to an end, so at the end of this age, when, whenever that is, and it's just a thousand years, why? Because no one knows when it's going to be. It's a long time. Right? It's not a literal number. It's a long time. So it could be tomorrow. It could be another thousand years from now. It could be another six thousand years from now. It could be whenever the Lord decides it's going to be. Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. Again, remember, this is the same thing we saw. This battle that's going to happen where all of the enemies of God's people are going to gather together. But remember, if you take this view, uh, this, this weird view of like 
you know, Jesus returning and, and rapture and all these things. Like this is happening within history. And so you're trying to figure out who's the leader of these armies and who's this stuff. This is when the thousand years is over. When Jesus returns, this is what happens. Okay? So this isn't something that we have to be like looking out for. You're not going to miss it. All right? <laughs> like if you didn't read your newspaper today, you're not going to be like, oh, shoot, man, we missed it. Right? Like that's not going to happen. I promise you. When it happens, you'll know, all right? The sky gets rolled up and, you know, some stuff like that happens. I think we'll probably know. Uh, so, and I saw them as they went up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil, so, so right, this is, again, this is a picture from Ezekiel, Right? And again, it's a picture, a figurative picture of the conquest of God. We saw this earlier. Jesus wins without a fight. He just says, he speaks, right? The sword from his mouth. Uh, they call vultures from heaven, right? It's never a call for us to gather some sort of physical army to fight another army. That's not it. We will gather with Jesus and do no fighting. We're wearing all white. No fighting. That's not it at all. We do not embrace any of the strategies of Babylon for the kingdom of God. No fighting. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The promise that God had to Adam and Eve in the garden, one day, we will crush that serpent. This is it. Jesus crushed the serpent and now will throw him into the lake of fire and he will never again torment anyone, but will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will be thrown into the lake of fire, setting up this final picture of the new heavens and new earth. Not only will he be thrown in, but it goes on the end of uh, in verse 14, then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Uh, yeah, there's this whole thing of first death and second death, first resurrection, second, right? Just first death is, or first resurrection, right, is uh, this idea of after you die physically, right, uh, you are resurrected spiritually to be with Jesus. That's all that means, right? That's, that's why he sees the souls, he doesn't see their bodies. He sees their souls. It's very uh, different language. It's very unique language for the sake of describing uh, what it means that if you die, you're going to be with Jesus, but it's not your final state. Everyone will be resurrected, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But this second death is the final judgment of God, the lake of fire, which death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. We're going to see this next week. This place, the new heavens, new earth, where death is no more. It's because death has been killed. Death has been thrown into the lake of fire. The thing that you maybe most fear, that affects every single one of us, is gone. Not only is it gone, it's thrown into a lake of fire. It can never again come at you. This is the promise of God. The certainty of God's multi-ethnic mission will also happen because he's going to accomplish it 
by judging the nations by the law. And I saw a great white throne, starting in verse 11 here, and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. This is one of the things we talked about last week, right, was this view of Jesus that's too safe. That he's just, he's, he's nothing. He's got no power over my life or anything. The earth and the sky flee at Jesus in his presence. He is powerful. He is powerful. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. There's nothing that we see in this about special groups of people avoiding judgment. This is a global judgment showcasing a global God who has made all people in his image. All people are made in God's image, and that means they are accountable to God. Now they are judged, it says, by their deeds, by the law, by what they have done. Sometimes uh, you may have been sharing the gospel at some point and someone said, is God really going to condemn someone just simply for not believing in Jesus, for not praying this prayer, doing this? That's not the picture at all. Everything you've ever done exposed before God. That's the picture. We're not judged simply by not believing in Jesus, but for everything that we have done. That's the judgment of God. Based upon his law, Think about it. Do you want everything you've ever thought, said, or done written in a book and exposed? Can you stand before one who sits on a throne to which the sky and the earth flee from his presence with everything you've ever done on display before him? God will do this. He will judge every person. And because what we do harms one another, because the law is inherently good and righteous and shows us how to live life together with God and one another, and all sin harms ourselves and each other, God takes this very seriously because he loves all those made in his image. And our sin does harm to one another. And so judgment will happen. Judged by the law, not simply by believing in Jesus. And yet we see in the midst of this, this incredible promise. The certainty of God's multi-ethnic mission will also be accomplished in not just judging by the law, but in salvation of the saints from all the nations by grace. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It's very real judgment here. Very real judgment. I cannot, like, avoid this. I know judgment is hard for us in our culture. We bring sort of our own biases from our culture. That judgment is hard for us to listen to and hear. But it's very real. God is very serious about sin. And yet there's this incredible promise here. 
You see that the judgment is based on the deeds that you had done. He judged them by the deeds done in the book, right? The deeds that you had done. But what is salvation by? Salvation is by your name being recorded in the book of life. You see, it's not, well, here's the thing. We've got this uh, picture of, uh, of salvation, which is like, okay, well, as long as I outdo my bad deeds by my good deeds, I'll be in good shape. So, like, if I've got these books filled up with all my deeds, as long as I put them on a seesaw and the good ones outweigh the bad ones, I'm in good shape, right? And so those who make it to heaven are those who have done the right things, have done all the good things. And those who, are in to judge, or who receive judgment are those who are sinners, who have run away from God, who are wicked. Well, the picture of this is different. Everyone's judged by what they have done. Everyone comes up lacking. The only source of salvation is your name being written in the book of life. The only source of salvation is that of grace. That of grace. See, we talked earlier about this uncertainty, this discomfortable uncertainty. Those who have, uh, have this fear that I haven't done enough and I won't make it in this rapture and I'll be stuck and left behind and all of these things because of my wickedness. That's not what this passage is designed to teach you. What it's designed to teach you is that if you look to Jesus and him alone for salvation. That's how your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have dipped your robes in his blood, right? We saw that earlier. If you have washed yourself through the blood of Jesus on the cross, if you are looking in faith to Jesus and him alone for salvation, then it's not based on anything that you've done, good or bad. It's based solely on what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done on your behalf. So if the idea of judgment scares you, if the idea of you having all of your deeds put forward before the Lord, run to the Lord Jesus. He has endured on your behalf. If you are afraid constantly that I haven't done enough, if you beat yourself up constantly and feel shame, and truly begin to hate yourself because of your sin, run to the Lord Jesus because He has done it all. He has recorded your name in His book of life to which He will not judge you according to your deeds, but according to His own grace. Because He died in your place, because He rose from the dead to conquer sin and Satan and death, He will not leave you or forsake you. He has joined himself to you. And you have the certainty, the comfortable certainty of God's grace. This, this is what this means for us. And it gives us this certainty that God will accomplish his mission and we can go forth and share the gospel with others because it's truly good news. You know that our gospel is not come and live a moral life with us. Come and look, we've got rules, so come and make sure you obey our rules when you come in. No, our gospel is come, all who are weary from trying to follow the rules. 
All who are weary with their own sin. All who have found the way of this world not to work for them. Come. Because Jesus has said, I love you. Come and receive the grace of God. Come, record your name in the book of life. And you will have the assurance that Jesus adores you. That God loves you. That He has come for you. That He has welcomed you home. This assurance is glorious. And there are times, friends, where we don't experience it. Absolutely. There are times that we don't experience it. There are times where our sin gets in the way. Our own doubts get in the way. Our own struggles get in the way. Whatever it is. So if you are like, that sounds awesome, but I don't have that right now, that's not uncommon for Christians. That's totally common. Totally normal. All Christians are going to have that experience throughout their lives. Some on a daily basis. But that's why we read this book. That's why we come and sit together and hear the good news of the gospel. Because you need to be told outside of yourself that Jesus has already accomplished this. That John saw a vision. And in that vision, you were not judged according to the works that you had done. You were judged based upon your name being written in the Lamb's book of life. And so you are already accepted. You are already there. You are already loved. And now in the light of this assurance... We now can love God and go love our neighbor because Jesus is good, because he's loved us so much. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we do what we do every week and why we're going to continue doing it every week until Jesus returns, because he's good. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we pray that we would experience this that we would experience this assurance. Jesus, we need you to give us grace that we would experience this, that we would know this, that we would be transformed by this. Jesus, would you be honored in all that we say and do? And Jesus, would you showcase to us your love? Would you assure us of your love? pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.